my first question was, what does it mean to be uh, dead in Christ? Uh, what does that mean? I thought Christ was life. I thought Christ was bread of life, water of life, source of life. What does it mean to be dead in Christ? Be in partnership with Christ. Be in partnership with Christ means to, to be dead in Christ means to be in partnership with Christ. You, it, to me, it means dying in the the hope of the resurrection and believing in Christ. Okay, dying in the hope of of uh, eventual resurrection, the hope of Christ. There's a hand in the back uh, in the corner there. Several concepts of the dead in Christ, and also the who lives as the leader in your in your soul. Is it uh, is it self, or is it uh, God that is the the master of your ship? And so, oftentimes historically, the term of dead in Christ has been used to help people understand that. You don't want that selfishness to be the the uh, captain of your ship. You want to be able to allow that to be put into the hands of God. Okay, good. I think going along with that, the dead part is the sinful nature part of us that's dead. And that the in Christ part is the, the new part of us. Okay, good. Wendell? Paul said, it's not I who live, but Christ in me. Okay, so the, the dying to self, Christ living in us. It's not, it's not my will, but his will. Wendell? Um, I've always had difficulty with um, this, anybody being inside you, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And um, there are translators who translate that same concept as in union with. So if you're in union with God, if, if truly your life and your spirit... And your hopes are in union with what God has for you. Then, if you go to sleep, whether it be physiologic sleep or whether it be sleep of cessation of this human life, then you're still in union with Christ. Okay, um, I, I, I can't disagree with that. that. That sounds more like the term "alive in Christ" than "dead in Christ." Um, my question was, how, what does it mean to be dead in Christ? And the other verse says, I die daily. It's an ongoing allowance of God to be, to take the leadership role. You're not striving to be alive. You know, you're not striving to have your way. You're allowing him. Much like the yoke of oxen, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly and you'll find rest for your souls. And you see, you think in terms of the oxen. They're, one of them is maybe an old seasoned oxen and the other one's new and they're trying to train the new one to be like the old one. And they're in union together, the, the more experienced one showing the younger one and empowering the younger one on how to live, how to do their job and so on. Okay. Uh, I, again, I can't disagree with that either. I'm not sure that has much to do with being dead in Christ. Taking it literally and from the verses referenced here in the lesson, it's also maybe referring to those who have died with their hope in Christ, just waiting for that resurrection. Okay. All right. Um, how, how, many, how many different types of death does Scripture speak about? Three. I heard two and I heard three. What are the, name the three. If we're referring to the dying of self, that would be the one, and then the other two, the uh, the first death and then the eternal death, if, uh, if choosing not to uh, not to dedicate to God and 
and still having self, so the eternal death. So death to self, which is basically a metaphoric death, which is part of the transformation process of allowing Christ to change, to remove the heart of stone, replace it with the heart of flesh, all those other metaphors. We have a sleep death, which is what humans understand as death. And then we have the actual death. Uh, it's important. I want to focus on these last two. It's important that in our discussions amongst ourselves, and certainly in our discussions with uh, Christian brothers and sisters who may have a different concept of death, that we are careful in our descriptions and in our choice of words and in our understanding and presentation that we we who have been raised Adventists or we have converted to Adventism, we understand death differently than the vast majority of Christianity and certainly the vast majority of, of humanity. Yes. But even in a lot of ways, Russell, I think we can use that even within Adventism. Oh, absolutely. We don't act like there's a distinction between Correct. the two. We act like, we grieve like, we go through ceremonies like, we prepare the body and dispose of the body like it was a completely different thing. Yep. And I think those traditions that have come in lead to great confusion. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and look at the passage that this, uh, this lesson is based on, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it in, in the interest of time. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Okay, there's, there's a sleep reference right there. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of the call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. <clears throat> Um, any, any, any thoughts as to how, how it is and why, well, we know why, but how it is that Satan has caused so much confusion in humanity with regard to the subject of death and how far back does that confusion go? That's excellent. You guys are right on point. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 4. Did God say that you are not to eat of the fruit of the tree? You will not surely die. God knows that you will, your eyes will be open. You will become like God. Okay? The lie in there was you will not surely die. I mean, he told the truth when he knew, when he told them that their eyes would be open and they would be like God, knowing good from evil. That was the truth. They knew good from evil from that point forward. Uh, the lie was that they would not die. Why do you think, let's use a sanctified imagination and, and go back in time and think about that, that uh, scene in the garden. 
<clears throat> why do you think that Satan chose that particular subject of immortality to tempt Eve with? Any ideas? experience with death up to that time. Okay, no one had had experience with death. So death was some concept. You know, God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall die. Well, what does that, what does die mean? Okay, so the, she may not have had a clear understanding of what death meant. You know, Wendell? Lucifer might not have had a clear understanding of what death was either. Uh, that's a great point. To our knowledge, our scriptural knowledge, we do not have any evidence of anyone ever dying before that. Right. Well, in fact, we have scriptural evidence that says there was no death before that. Mm-hmm. That death was the result of sin. That it came in by the, res- by the consequence. It came in as a consequence. But well, that was not the first sin. Correct. You know, well, so. Lucifer may well have thought that um, by death that God meant the experience that he and his angels were experiencing of being cast out of heaven, you know, into darkness, into the abyss, which, you know, the, the pit, darkness, abyss, these are all, these are all terms that are, they're used in, in, uh, synonymously with death in the old, in the old Testament. Now I've got a list of, list of texts uh, here, particularly in Job and Psalms, he refers to the pit as death. Um, so Satan may well have thought that that's something that he, he may not have understood that they would die on earth. He, he just, all he wanted to do was separate them from God and experience the, quote, death that, that he and his angels had uh, experienced. Wouldn't the, the promise of avoidance of death be like the ultimate control thing? Because death is the one thing that, you know, no one here has control over. And if Satan, the, the ultimate epitome of, of selfish center is to have control over that element. Um, I can't help wondering if that's uh, where his promise of you shall not surely die uh, so that you can seek that self-driven um, part of the, the motivation. Uh, certainly possible. You know. um, think about, think for a minute, however, about how we, how we were designed. What, what was our design? What was God's design for us? We were designed for immortality. That's how we were created. We were created to live in harmony with the, quote, law of God. And in doing so, and with access to the tree of life, humans would live forever. That's, it's, it's, it's part of our, part of our makeup, part of our DNA, part of our soul, however you want to say it. Um, and it hasn't changed throughout time. You know, we still have this drive. We still have this yearning. To live forever. Yes. The difference is that Satan assumed that he had life within himself. And that's not true. I, and most of the world believes that we have life within ourselves. I heard Billy Graham say one time years ago, you are born to live forever. Either live in hell or in heaven forever. Okay. Well, this, this is a great segue uh, right now because my next question was, how can we how can we estimate the damage that has occurred in humanity because of a belief in the immortality of the soul because of this this doctrine of of the devil that the soul is immortal and you can live forever no matter what you just follow my pathway you'll you'll live forever 
If God didn't impose his anger and death on you, then we'd be fine. How many, how many, how many doctors can you guys think of that have, that have, have that at its root? If, He's already mentioned one. If we think that when we lose our sense of dependence upon God. That's true. And that is what death eventually results in. Linda? Well, eternal hell, fire, okay. is eternal life. In a weird sort of way, God is artificially keeping you alive. So you can burn forever and ever and stay alive forever. You're still not dying. Well, or or the soul has its inherent immortality. God has no no sway over it. He created the soul immortal, and it's going to be immortal whether you're cooking in the flames or whether you're playing a harp on a cloud. Um, okay, that's that's one fantastic doctrine of devils that has been uh, created that has evolved out of this. Immortality of the soul doctrine. And the epitome of cruelty. Oh, I agree. Would be terrible. Even we wouldn't do that. As evil as we are, yeah. we would think that's overreacting. Correct. Um, I have a friend of mine is a devout Catholic in Sacramento, and I um, we got to, we got on this subject of, of heaven and hell one time, and I said, well, you know, if your children, you know, chose a different pathway and and, and chose to chose to um, deviate from your parent, you know, you and your wife's plan for their lives, would you punish them by burning them in hell? He said, God, no. Who would do that? I said, well, the the God that some people believe in does that. Well, that's different. (laughs) Really, is it? Any other? Peggy. So why would you even believe or have a God that does that who is so cruel. This message is turning a lot of people away from God. Oh, I, I, absolutely. There was a control element back millennia ago to be able to intimidate individuals into uh, the seeking out the uh, theoretic protection and then uh, the... Uh, you know, paying penance for the individuals in purgatory and all this wasn't it simply a control? Absolutely, and this this is another doctrine: the Catholic indulgences. Um, but any other any other doctrines that have evolved out of this um, soul is immortal concept? Okay, you just go on and on, going into different lives. You never really end. You just either get worse or get better, depending on your behavior in each life. Okay, a pagan or Hindu concept of reincarnation. Spirits and, and, and saints and saints and, and uh, the Virgin Mary. devils and, and angels and the whole thing has been mixed up in people's minds about the eternal flow of their life. Okay. What about uh, departed loved ones coming back and, and bringing us uh, wisdom and um, guidance from beyond? Or they're, they're your angel. Great. Oh, yep. Or, you know, grandma's looking down in heaven. She's my guardian angel. Um, what about holy wars, jihads, things like that? Prayer for the souls of the dead. What about abortion is murder? about that doctrine? Think about that one. What about the freedom of getting to know God and how in his wonderful plan of the soul sleeping 
that it doesn't have the torture of not being able to help the one that they love if they're looking down from heaven and they see bad things happening? How awful would it be to that soul to not be able to intervene and help? Well, we're going to get we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, I want to get to what what our unique belief in that says about God and how that differs uh, from you know, the, the rest of Christianity. But uh, right now I'm, I'm thinking about um, doctrines that have developed as a as an outgrowth of the immortality of the soul. You just breezed right past that one. Could you go back to the abortion is murder thing? And- <laughs> <laughs> I, I was waiting. I was wait. I was waiting for. I was waiting for the, uh, the reaction. Yeah, I was waiting for the onslaught. <laughs> Thoughts? Is that an outgrowth of the soul is immortal? The idea that abortion is murder. I don't know if it's that so much as wondering uh, what some people, you know, differ on the uh, the opinion of when life actually begins versus the soul being immortal. Uh, life, whether it is that mortal soul, that individual, the question is when when is it defined as life? Is my understanding of the the okay? My what what does scripture have to say about? The soul of a a, uh, a forming fetus. Uh, there was a distinction made that if, if a woman was um, accidentally hit by someone and uh, she lost the baby, then they had to pay a price. Interesting. Exodus twenty one verse twenty two or three. I think someone look that up, please. When men strive together and put a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Okay, what uh, version is that? This is uh, uh, English Standard. Okay, anyone have a different version? Verse 23, yes. 23 as, as goes on. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In IV, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there's serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then living Bible, uh, again, comes down to, but if any harm comes to the woman and she dies, he shall be executed. Interesting. They say, and she dies. Huh. And that was the living Bible. What does it say about the the miscarriage or the premature birth or the spontaneous abortion? What does it say about the life of the child or the deforming child? According to this, it's it's technically not murder because it's not requiring a life in return. Thoughts? Do we do we believe that? Do we understand that? Okay, let's set some context here. This is after the Ten Commandments have been given. This is at the point where God is filling in some blank spaces for the children of Israel because they clearly needed it. He's he's providing some detail. And this is just after the eye for an eye, bruise for a bruise, tooth for a tooth, life for a life um, thing that that much of humanity has not evolved beyond. Um, and yet, 
he's he's setting forth a a potential incident where two men are fighting and a woman is involved and she is struck and gives birth prematurely some some versions say miscarries uh miscarriage also is known as a spontaneous abortion it's the terms are synonymous and the penalty for that is a fine whatever the what of whatever the woman's husband demands it's a fine it's not a life it's not the life of the uh aggressor to the woman well I always assumed that a spontaneous abortion was something that was not caused externally or exceptionally to the mother-child. Well, this event says that the woman is struck, and, and this causes her to either give birth prematurely or miscarry. Right, but I wouldn't consider her being struck a spontaneous abortion. The term spontaneous is from. She may not have been purposely struck. Well, and I think we don't really know all of those things, but I don't. When you said God was filling in some things for them, I think we have to keep in mind God was filling in some things with them. He was bringing them along gradually. I don't think God was able to fill in everything for them. He kind of came where they were, and they didn't value life at that point really at all. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth isn't where God wants us to be. Correct. That's right. You know, you bump me in the hallway. He doesn't want me taking out your eye. Right. Or bumping you back or whatever. I mean, I think we have to see that in context that I don't think God is placing his value on an unborn child in that direction. I see it differently, but that's okay. We, we can respectfully disagree, I hope. The, um, the point I want to make with this is that I don't think any of us know what God's thoughts on abortion are. I don't want, I don't want you to leave here and think that Russell thinks abortion is great. It's a, it's a perfect, uh, perfectly valid birth control device. That's not correct. Um, the state that we find ourselves in here in 2012 with the abortion issue, I think, has its root in the immortality of the soul. And whether you, whether your conscience convicts you that it's, that's wrong, then it probably is wrong for you. If your conscience is clear on it, then great. God bless you. Okay. I have acquaintances who have, who terminated pregnancies in college when they were 19 and they, now, in their 40s, have spent thousands and thousands of dollars in virtual fertilization to, to get pregnant, and they believe that God's punishing them for the abortion that they had when they were 19, where in reality, they're physically scarred in the uterus, and a, and a fertilized egg won't take hold. But in their minds, they're being punished by God. Does that make them right or wrong? Don't know. But I, I think the bottom line, though, is as you come to understand that incredible, unselfish core of God, then that is not a, a, a vindictive, you did that before, zap, I will scar you, versus the individual 
unfortunately reaping the, the effects of prior choices that were their own choice. And also at the same time, the, the folks that uh, are around that you may know who have varying opinions on the abortion itself, being able to recognize and love the individual without having to judge them for their opinion on something that we may not, not have all the facts of. Uh, well said. Excellent. Linda, one more and we need to move on. Women who have abortions wonder if they'll meet their unborn child in heaven. May God I'm sure they do. see this as something who's just merely sleeping as well. I'm sure they do. And, you know, Scripture is wisely silent on that. Well, it says you have to be born in water. The fetus is in embryo in water. So if you're going to be born and become a soul, a living soul, then you'll have to pass through that part of the birth process to be considered. Is that? Um, I'm not sure. Is that what is that what being born by water means, or is that a metaphor for you know the baptism and the being born again process? I I believe in the other one. Okay. All right. All right. Let's see. Where are we? Oh, I want to. I want to talk about um, some of Scripture's definitions of. The uh, the concept that humans understand is death. Um, it's described as hell. Do you know that death is described as hell in some texts and some versions? Psalms fifty five fifteen, Psalms one thirty eight thirty nine eight, Proverbs five five, Proverbs nine eighteen, fifteen twenty four, Isaiah fourteen nine, Ezekiel thirty two twenty seven. These are all in my, in the notes. Um, why why would death be described as hell? I mean, hell's hell's the eternal burning, isn't it? So David and Solomon um, were trying to to strike some fear into the into the uh, the minds of who the, the readers in the Psalms and Proverbs. Is that why? Is that why it's described as hell? Is another like synonym for those words? Isn't it the grave too? Or am I wrong on that? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, the, the shill, the, the the Jewish term shill, correct. Different word than the words that, for um, words? Are, that okay. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I read several versions, and some said hell, some said pit, some said grave. Um, you know, the older translations said hell. Newer translations or more modern translations, same. You know, changed that and why they changed yeah. it. Good question. We were <laughs> we're open to debate. Um, might it have to do with the idea, that original idea that Satan may have had, that you know, the separation away from God, the being in the darkness and the pit and the abyss, was uh, was like a hell. And the and then humanity's concept of hell, the place of the eternal burning, has has changed with human tradition over time. It's described as the pit. Uh, lots of Job references and a few signs in Psalms and Proverbs. It's described as a sleep. Uh, most of these references, well, they're about half and half, Old versus New Testament. Um, I think the best example of ones in John 11, 11 through 14. Someone look that up, please. John 11, 11 through 14. 
And we're almost through with Sabbath's lesson, so bear with me here. Yeah, please read it. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, this is where uh, Christ is uh, returning back to Jerusalem, Bethany. Bethany, to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. He told his disciples Lazarus sleeps. They thought he meant he's in you know, REM sleep. He's dreaming. He'll get better. He told them plainly, no, Lazarus is dead. If the founder of our church refers to death as a sleep, shouldn't we? Across more translations, King James International Living Bible and Revised Standard all of them use the same element of fall and asleep as the terminology of using there. Okay. <clears throat> so, the idea of being asleep, the natural conclusion is that someday you're going to awake. Right? Yeah. So Christ is going to wake Lazarus up. I was just, anyway. when you ask, shouldn't we in the church refer to it as falling asleep? And I I think we do if someone dies that we've judged is going to live again. We say they've fallen asleep in Jesus. But what do we say about... About those whom, in our opinion, are falling asleep to be raised in a different resurrection? They're still asleep. Still they still sleep. I mean, we only say those that, that, that we have judged. That's true. Uh, there is a bit of hypocrisy there. Um, the, well, that's why we're told to judge not. That's correct, because we, we don't know anyone's heart. I, I once heard that um, if we get to heaven, there's going to be like a three-way surprise. We're going to be surprised that we're there first. We're going to be surprised that those of us who we thought would be there aren't there. And we're going to be surprised that those of us who we thought had no, no way of making it there are our neighbors. So uh, it's not up to us to judge. Hallelujah. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's move on. Sunday's lesson. This is, uh, yes. If you approach each person as still precious in God's eyes as the child he's trying to save, then you won't have to worry about uh, making the prejudgment, and you can just leave that all in the Father's hands where it belongs. So it's that's that's correct. Gift. Uh, Sunday's lesson is talking about it's asking us to conceptualize some of the errors that had crept into the thinking of the Thessalonians. Um, are there any any ideas about what sorts of errors these these people are dealing with that that Paul has to come up and tell him, look, we do not want you to be uninformed about this process. They were uninformed, um, first of all, that they didn't know or, or really have a clear understanding of what happened. Or didn't remember what they had been told. Right. Um, it implies that they did, in fact, grieve, like everybody else, like there was, there was no hope after death. Okay, so they're assuming that you die, 
it's too bad for you. You're not going to make it. Um, I thought it was interesting that he also says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which implies that they may have had a misunderstanding there, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, this is what we base it on, that Jesus died and rose again. So we also are going to die and rise again if we die. Right. It also, um, there's some interesting interesting things about, he makes, he makes very clear that there's a certain order of things. Uh, apparently the Thessalonians were misinformed about what, that when you die, you go to heaven, but if you're still alive on earth, you, when the Lord comes, you, you'd be separated from your loved ones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, he says, you know, first, the dead in Christ will be, well, see, where are we? Voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So apparently there was some thought and there was some thinking process of Thessalonians that there'd be a separation between those who had died first and those who were alive. Thoughts? Um, is it any surprise that there was confusion about this? <laughs> Not to me. Even when Christ was on earth, were, were the Jews in unity about what happened at the time of death? Or what happened after death? No, there, there, were, two, there were two primary groups. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. What was unique about the Sadducees? What was the primary thing that was unique about the Sadducees? Didn't believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in a resurrection. That's right, I said. That's what? That's why they're sad. That's why they were sad, you see. That's, that's good. That's funny. That's, that's a new one. That's funny. That's, that's... Do you remember that Paul took advantage of that? When he was... Yes, he did. When he was, uh, when he was in court, yeah. Paul, Paul, Paul saw the two different groups, and he, he said resurrection, and, and bedlam ensued. <laughs> he, um, he took advantage of the situation to his own temporary advantage. Yeah. And well done. Russell, isn't it a very um, compelling idea that, that um, spiritual things are symbolically and spiritually discerned and interpreted? Yeah, as I agree. Physically mm-hmm. interpreted. So that, you know, especially coming out of a Greek uh, philosophical tradition and with the Sadducees and so forth, which, of course, were heavily influenced that way, that would be... A very, very uh, compelling and, and almost uh, basic idea that you would have to, com- you know, compete with. That's uh, we're going to get. We're going to talk a little bit about that in Monday's lesson. But first of all, Sunday's lesson uh, entitled "Dying and Rising." What? Um, let's talk a little bit about Christ's death and resurrection. What are some of the theories about why Christ was raised from the dead? To give us hope. Well, okay, yeah, it was that was a purpose, but maybe I'm not asking the question correctly. Um, if I'm- what was what was Christ's resurrection a result of? Uh, maybe that may be a better uh, way to phrase it. He lived his life perfectly in harmony with God's law. There was nothing that could keep him in the grave. Um, he chose to lay down his life, and life continued. You know, 
after on on Sunday. I mean, there was nothing else that could happen. Okay, good. He was resurrection and life. It was he laid his life down, but he also took his life back up. Okay, and so um, he was different from us in the sense that he was divine. And he said, I have the power to lie, lay my life down. I have the power to, to take my life back up. It was not external to himself okay. for his resurrection. Have you ever heard the theory that um, Christ's resurrection was God's reward for a job well done? I have. In fact, I grew up with it. Okay, That's, that's a doctrine of devils. Uh, what Wendell and Eve just said is is the more accurate description, or is the accurate description. Christ is life itself, and no no confines, no grave could uh, can, could hold him because he was in perfect harmony with God's law. God's law is life itself. Christ said in John seventeen, "This is eternal life that you know." <clears throat> the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Yes. I agree with what Wendell said, but I have a very difficult time understanding those words. Because if you're alive, if you are life, how can you be dead? His humanity died. Right. He slept. But why did his humanity die? So, his humanity lived again. There was a gap in time where he was not human? He, may I? He allowed evil men in confederacy with the prince of this world to, to take his life, to take the human life. So there was that gap in time where Jesus was not human. If he allowed his humanity to die, he wasn't human. I'm not, I'm not sure I follow that. Well, there's, there's a confusion with the identity, you know, passing from a living soul, breathing, physical being, and, and then not having an existence which is essentially what death is. You're without existence. You know, we, we surmise that our spirit goes to God. The Bible says it does. But what is that, you know? Well, that spirit... The power of life... Went to himself. Yeah, we're in deep here. Uh, I'm not sure I have... No, no, this is fine. This is, this is, this is good. This is why we're here. Um, You know, Christ, Christ's humanity went to sleep. I don't know what happened to his divinity. But, you know, when Christ was resurrected, he told Mary, do not touch me. I have not yet been to my father. So we can conclude reasonably that some part of him didn't go to heaven in that 24 hours or, or you know, however long he was, quote, asleep. Um, I, I don't know what happened to his soul. And you know what? None of us do. None of us. How many? How many of us have ever died and come back to life? 
How many of us know what it's like when the brain stops functioning? How many of us know for sure? Anyone? No. I don't. There's lots of misinformation out there about what happens. You know, we'll walk to the light. The, the divine human union that occurred in Christ was bound in the tomb if he was still divine and human. Okay? Okay. At the end of his sleep, the father came to him and said, Arise. His, his divine nature then had only to give life to his human body for him to have a resurrection. That was divine power. That was not his humanness that, came, that brought himself back to life. It okay, I, I can... But he was divine and human, blended in union together. And so his humanity did die, and his divinity was bound together in that tomb. So we can say that he, he chose not to exercise his divine power to save himself in the garden and on the cross. That he, he fully, fully exercised his human will to, to allow the evil men to, to murder him. I don't, my understanding is, and I don't, you know, whatever, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think humans murdered him. I think he gave up his life by being bound to this humanness in which he was treated as if he had sinned. He He was treated as sin for us. And so the natural result, there's no one going to have to come and kill us in the end. That is a natural process of sin. Sin, when it is mature, brings death. Okay. And he suffered death as a result of eternal, not eternal, of separation from the Father who is life. So was his divinity able to observe all of this? I don't know that. <laughs> That's one of those good question, bad question things. A good question is one I know the answer to. A bad question is one I don't know the answer to. That would have been a bad question. <laughs> yeah, I, I see your point. I see your point about. Seen to be on the portals of the tomb. So I, my assumption is no, he did not. It was clothed. And, and yet. And yet he accurately predicted numerous times to his disciples what would happen. So he, he looked forward in faith and with evidence. To, to his father, who he knew explicitly. Like we can do, yes. actually. We can, look, we can trust what God says will happen. We don't personally know it. We just trust what he says will happen. We're told that, that, you know, he didn't do anything without the Father, and that is that we would do even more things than he did in his life. Maybe because there's more of us, or, you know, we're spread in more directions, or whatever, but Jesus, the divinity, sort of only allowed humanity, his human side, to live like we would live. 
Otherwise, we would say, you know, he really wasn't representative of us. Well, I, I think Christ said that you will do greater things than this because we would be able to show the world and the universe what a character transformation looks like. Whereas he, he could not. His character had no defects to begin with. So, um, you know, the great, what's the greater miracle? Starting, starting perfect and ending perfect or starting rotten and ending, and ending, uh, transformed. Okay. That's, that's the greater miracle. Um, moving on to Monday's lesson, actually. Go ahead. Before you get off the death of Jesus Christ, we earlier talked there are two different kinds of death. Mm-hmm. Ellen White writes in the beginning of the book, Great Conover, uh, Desire of Ages, that Christ died our death. I've often tried to understand is that the temporary death, the sleep death of the righteous, or, is, or did Christ die the eternal death, the death of the wicked? What do you think? There, I think there are probably some elements of both. Um, Revelations tells us that the second death is the death in the lake of fire. Okay, now we understand that lake of fire to be the the fire and brilliance of of the very presence of God, not an imposed hell. Um, so, what the, are the elements of the second death? I mean, define the second death as you're asking it in that question. The Bible says that the lake of fire is the second death. Well, simply taking it simply, second death is no resurrection. First death, there is resurrection. That's that's uh, the main difference between the two. Th- that's why there. That's why I believe there's some elements of both of the sleep death and the eternal death. Christ on the cross said, "You know, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Hey, why have you separated yourself from me? Why have you withdrawn? Why have you let me go? Why have you withdrawn from me? Um, that, uh, I believe, has elements of the second death in it. The difference is, is that Christ, when he was on the cross, was yearning to see his father. He had complete trust in his father. He, he knew his father. He, he revealed his father. The wicked, on the other hand, at the second death, will be terrified of of their father. They will not know their father and they will be they will be open to hide themselves from from his glory. So the father the father's no different. The difference is the character of the one of the one who um is experiencing it. Wendell. He, he died in confidence knowing who his father was. Right. And so that is much different than the second death. Absolutely. When he said it is finished he said it in triumph. Mm-hmm. That was not a a defeat. That yeah, it was a victory God, statement. That was a victory statement. Right. That it is finished, and I have come to the end, and my father is who I said he was. Mm-hmm. And, and, so it's, that, and it's in his hands. That is much different than the second death. Right. But... Could he see beyond the portals of the tomb? No. There are some... Uh, he trusted his father with that future. There is some some evidence that Christ's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane um, is analogous to that separation and that and that second death experience that uh, the wicked will experience in the end. Okay, I got three hands here. Now, makes the statement also that Jesus 
felt what the wicked will feel when they, when they die the real second death. And she writes that the wicked will feel when they die the second death, separation from God, that they will feel what Christ felt on the cross. Uh, I'm not familiar with that reference. But, but he felt that. They will feel themselves separated from God. We know he felt that. Yeah. Oh, I, oh absolutely. They will, they, will, they will come to a full realization of the condition of their own character and the, and the revelation of God's character and the, and the revelation that they were completely mistaken. And they will, they will understand how many other people they've led to the error of thinking. That's why they're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hang on just a second. If the first death could atone for sin, wouldn't it logically follow that all of us who die atone for our sin? I think the fact that he was atoning for our sin indicates that it wasn't a sleep that he was experiencing. I'm not certain that we have scriptural evidence that says that his death atoned for our sin in that manner. Yeah, yeah. Right. His life, death, and resurrection—all, all come. You can't separate the three. Even you know his birth, life, and resurrection, a death and resurrection. Um, you can't, you can't divest one from the other. Uh, the, the whole, the whole process of a revealing God's character, b revealing Jesus's character. And see, providing, therefore, working out in humanity a a um, a method for healing us. All all three of those, all of that is what atones for sin. That's what brings us back into unity and harmony with God's law. Um, it the, you know the first death, second death, whatever uh, a payment system is not. That's not what atones right. atones for death. Martin. The point of contention is that if we believe that Christ did not die the second death, the death of the wicked, then the argument comes up, Christ did not pay the price of sin, the price for sin. Well, if we go that direction, then the, the question comes up, can sin be paid for? What is sin? Thoughts? Wendell? It's not a price. Right. Right. You know, the wages of sin are death. The end result of sin is death. He did not pay a price for my my salvation. He experienced, he demonstrated, and he also overcome. Hebrews said he also destroyed the works of the devil. Mm -hmm. He did several things in his death. He destroyed the works of the devil. He showed what what God is like, God the Father is like, and he showed what sin is like. He did not pay a price that goes on my tab. Okay, yeah, thank you for clearing that up. He he paid a dear price. He paid he paid a dear price in experiencing the separation from God. He experienced a, he paid a price in that my understanding is he's now no, now no longer omnipresent. It, and the atonement is he brought us back mm-hmm. yes. to, to God. Right. He brought at one mint. He did not pay a price. He brought us back to God. He did not bring God to man. Correct. The atonement price, it, when you say you're paying a price and you're doing something so God can accept us. No, God has always accepted us. You know, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. 
You know, and there's more and more texts like that about how he, you know, he is not bringing God to man. He's bringing man back to God. Well, I, th- I think a better way of terming it is he didn't pay a penalty. Um, we have no idea of calculating, you know, what the price that he, the, what he gave up in order to, in order to, um, to do what he did. Uh, it's inestimable. But he didn't pay a penalty. Um, to, to God's law or to God himself or to anything else. There was no, there was no payment penalty system. God so loved the world that he gave. Correct. This goes back to the problem you mentioned at the very beginning about we need to clarify words because we're taking words from one system of economy, cost, penalty, payment. God did pay a penalty. There was a penalty. There was a suffering, but not to himself or not ever. There was a cost. There was a payment, mm-hmm. but we try to fit it into our understanding of economy. And those words have to be understood differently. Hang on just a second. Uh, well, I, I want to get to one other thing uh, in Monday's lesson. I want, I want you guys to think about what it would what it would be like <clears throat> to attend the funeral of a loved one without uh, our unique understanding of death as a sleep, the eventual resurrection, uh, how that fits in with God's law, uh, etc. Think about think about what it would mean to attend a funeral without that understanding. Is it comforting? No. <laughs> Hardly. You think it's comforting with your understanding? Yes. It, yeah, yeah, actually, it is. I, I buried my I buried my father three years ago and didn't shed a tear because because of the comfort that I had knowing. Knowing, seeing the transformation of his character, and and having a peace and understanding which resurrection he'll be in. Had had that comfort. What if I hadn't? Well, that, that's my point. Is that I I did have that comfort because of my unique understanding uh, of what of the concept of death and what it says about God, what it says about God's law, what it says about um, our condition. Um, you know. If he, if he died 10, 12 years ago, I would have had a very different experience at the funeral. Very different. Not, and not in a good way. And when we have that eternal perspective, we can get much comfort. But we, we also should remember that God's original design was not to even have Correct. this uh, that's, separation that, even for this temporary. That's period. absolutely so right. There's some, some grieving that comes naturally out of that, I would say, even for those who have hope. Correct, and and also um, think about what think about where that evolves from. What when, when we are grieving at a funeral, <clears throat> and I'm not saying it's you know it's, it's silly to grieve at a funeral that that'd be stupid, but think about what think about where that where the, what the source of that is. Isn't it generally a consideration of self? You know, my loss. You know, what's going to happen now? How am I going to raise my children? Um, you know, what am I going to do for income? I mean, the, the list is endless. Or for others in your family, um, if, when my father died, uh, of the, the, knowing the impact on mom. Correct. You know, yeah. Of the, the loneliness that she would have and that losing one's best friend and all the rest. So the, the tears have a place and it can be a place of healing, but there is that hope that is the foundation of being able to then um, trust and know that there is better, and allow that to be part of the healing process. I agree. One more comment, and I've got to wrap up. Loss of companionship. Yeah. Whether it's for 
one month, right. one year, mm-hmm. ten years, right. is a loss. That's right. And when you lose companionship with those you love, you love to be around, there is hurt, pain, mm-hmm. you know, and sadness. And whether that's for a brief period of time or for a long period of time. And so the closeness to the individual will make it so that it is painful. And God did never intended that happen. Yep, right. right. You know? Well said. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap up. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the unique understanding that we have uh, regarding death and resurrection and how that uh, it works in accordance with your original design. We, we know that you did not design things to, to be, to end up the way they've become. You designed us to live forever. You designed us never to experience separation uh, and fear uh, and hurt and pain. And we look forward to a day when those things are banished. Um, Please hasten it. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.